Well, on Sunday, Asher, as I said, was with us, and he led us through the first half of Acts chapter 4, verses 1 through 22, and there's a lot there. Peter and John are in a verbal ping-pong match with the religious leaders, and there are layers of ideas in Old Testament quotations and fantastic one-liners. There's deep theology and even great controversy that reverberates, reverberates from the time of Acts 4 really till today. And so Asher gave us a nice summary of those first 22 verses of Acts 4, but because there's much there, I think there's, I think there's still some meat left on the bone that's worth picking at this evening. I'd like to pull out just a couple of issues and hold them up for us to consider tonight with some extra attention. But let's first remember what these verses say. Let's read Acts chapter 4. Remembering even here as I pick up in Acts chapter 4 verse 1, we're sort of picking up in the middle of a story. The lame beggar was healed in chapter 3, and this has sparked some controversy. Peter has been explaining to the people and to the religious leaders what all this means. And then we read in Acts chapter 4 verse 1. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. For seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or to teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. 
And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. Well, next Sunday, we'll get into verse 23 in following. As I said, there are a couple of things in these verses I'd like to give a a little bit more attention to. Two main points for us to consider tonight. There'll be a good bit under each of those, but, but two main headings. One is opposition, the other is salvation. There's opposition and salvation. The first we could word specifically like this. Opposition is expected and it centers on Jesus. Opposition should be expected for Christians. Jesus told his disciples in Matthew 10 that he was sending them out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Imagine that, just picture it. Sheep sent two packs of wolves, wolves around them. Here, that's what we find in Acts chapter four. The wolves are circling about and many in number. First Peter is a book that's written to address suffering and specifically the suffering of persecution. And Peter says, don't be surprised by the fiery trial that's all around you as if something strange were happening to you. Now, persecution may not look the same in every place and every time, but Paul could say, all who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution of various kinds, we know. But it's true, opposition is expected, at least it should be for the followers of Christ. Opposition centers on Jesus, though. Now, what starts the controversy that we find in Acts 3 and 4 is the healing of the lame man in Acts chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. But then Peter explains the significance of that healing in the rest of Acts 3. And the significance of it is Jesus. It's Jesus. The healing was done, you see, chapter 3, verse 16, in his name, You see, verse 17 of chapter 3, the healing was possible in Jesus' name because all of the prophets before were pointing to him. Or in verse 22 and following, there, a prophet like Moses would someday come and would be even greater than Moses. And, And Peter and John are saying that this Jesus is that prophet like Moses. Or in chapter 3, verse 25, he's the son of Abraham. Or in verse 26, he's the servant. Think capital S, servant, like Isaiah foretold. And then in chapter 4, they're still teaching, aren't they? As the chapter opens, they're still teaching. And the religious leaders, we're told, are greatly annoyed. Why? Well, chapter 4, verse 2, because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. And that's why they were arrested, not because of the healing, but because of the teaching. That's also the direction of their inquisition to them the next day. You see, verse 7, by what power or by what name did you do this? They already know Peter and John's answer to that question, but they're, they're making them double down. They're trying to intimidate. By what name do you think you did this? Peter's answer. 
verse 10. It's by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified. After Peter's defense, if you go all the way to, what would it be now? Verse 13 and following of chapter 4, we, re we read there that the religious leaders can't deny the reality of the miracle that had been done. But really, who cares? Because that's not their concern anyway. Verse 17, we should warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. Verse 18, they charge them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. I hope my point is beginning to be obvious that the, the controversy wasn't so much the healing of the lame man that set this ablaze. The fire, the controversy is what the miracle means, what it centers on and what it says about Jesus. The disciples weren't charged to heal no more but to speak no more and speak no more specifically about Jesus. The controversy centers on Jesus. And the same is true today. Helping people in meeting needs is generally welcomed in our culture. It's widely accepted, maybe even applauded. If you went to work building homes for Habitat for Humanity, everyone says, that's great. Good for you. I, I wish I could find some time to help people like that. It, it only gets sticky when you start tying it to Jesus too much. If you go around building houses for Habitat for Humanity and keep telling everyone you work with that you're there and doing what you're doing because of Jesus, well, you won't keep going around and doing that. Eventually, they'll uninvite you, I suppose. So opposition is expected and it centers on Jesus. And from there, we can draw out some other implications about opposition. Like this, opposition apparently will be varied and sometimes seemingly relentless. I mean, in our passage, you have greatly annoyed, chapter 4, verse 2, imprisoned, interrogated, verse 7 and following, and then threatened. And from here on in the story of Acts, it's only going to get worse. Opposition will be varied. It's sometimes seemingly relentless. Opposition is senseless. In verse 16, they realize this notable sign. They even call it a sign. I mean, they should know that kind of language. It signifies something, doesn't it? It's a sign that the miracle was not just a miracle, but, a, but a, an arrow, an equal sign. It pointed to something, and they can't deny that it happened. In fact, it's evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and yet, and yet their stubborn unbelief, it's breathtaking, and yet it's completely understandable if we understand the condition of the human heart apart from salvation. But opposition is senseless. We could say also opposition is useless. Isn't it great how the, the threats do nothing, right? Their first round of threats and warning are met with Peter and John saying, you gotta do what you gotta do, we gotta do what we gotta do, and we gotta obey God, not you, in this scenario anyway. 
And so do what you got to do. We're going to keep speaking about Jesus. Then they're further threatened. Then they let him go. That's all they can do, at least in this scenario. Now, it doesn't always go that way. Sometimes uh, they'll keep you longer. Sometimes they'll kill you. Sometimes they'll threaten your kids instead of you. We know of horrible stories from the mission fields around the world. But ultimately, in the grand scheme of things, their opposition is useless. Think of Psalm 2, right? The kings of this world oppose the Lord and his anointed, and they strategize about how to throw off the bonds of the Lord's anointed. But he who's in the heaven laughs, and he will set his king on his holy hill. We'll see the disciples in our next section of Acts quote from, Acts two, quote from Psalm 2 and apply it to this situation because the opposition is useless. We see also in our passage that opposition must be met with boldness and clarity. Boldness. It's everywhere. When they saw the astounding boldness, they got together and tried to figure out what to do. I mean, boldness is throughout these two chapters. Chapter 3, chapter 4, the next section will be a prayer for more boldness. But, the, but you need more than just boldness. You need clarity and specificity. We'll see that even more under the next heading when we get to it. We see civil disobedience happening here. That's what's going on in chapter 4, verse 18 and 19. It's not that the apostles refused to recognize the legitimate human authority of Jewish leaders. It's that God's authority trumped their human authority. And so when those are in competition, God always wins. We submit ourselves to human government, except for when they say sin or when they say don't obey the Bible. We must obey God rather than man. Opposition must be met with boldness and clarity, but also hope. Jesus' rejection and his crucifixion, remember, was also the means of salvation. It's not just condemnation, you crucified him, though that's there and that's part of their boldness. It's not just that they're exalting Christ as a, as a world savior, there's confrontation in that, yes. But isn't there also an element of salvation in all of this? The stone's rejection, yes, was their doing. And yet that was also part of the plan for that stone's exaltation to be the cornerstone of a whole new temple and a whole new creation. Opposition must be met with boldness and clarity, but also hope. So number two, salvation has been provided. We said opposition is expected and it centers on Jesus. Now number two, salvation has been provided. We'll get to more of that point number two in just a minute. There'll be a second line or so uh, in just a minute. But, but notice salvation has been provided. And for this point, number two, we're going to just focus on verse 12. 
Again, I said there's much in this section of God's word, and here it is jam-packed. Verse 12, there is salvation in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Just take that a phrase at a time, sometimes even just a word at a time to think of its significance. And think of it first in its positive light. God has provided salvation. There is salvation. What great news that would be in light of, look back, chapter 3, verse 14. You denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. And to this we are witnesses. Or chapter 4, verse 10. Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified and whom God raised from the dead, this Jesus, verse 11, was the stone that was rejected by you, the builders. It's really good news to come to verse 12 and hear there is salvation. There is forgiveness. There is salvation that's given. See that word? Given. It's a gift from God. It's not something you could earn. It's not something we could build our way up to. It's not something we could garner or, or maneuver for. It's, it's given. There is salvation given. It's given among men. Mankind. The whole world. This is Salvation for all peoples. It's given among men without distinction. It is given among men under all of heaven, no matter where you go. So all peoples, all places, under heaven and among men. Salvation given among men under all of heaven by which we must be saved is what Peter says, but if we can just for now say, by, by which you can be saved, by which there's a chance you'll be saved, by this be saved. There's confrontation in all this, but there's certainly the hint of invitation for all who would hear. Opposition, as I said, must be met with boldness and clarity and hope and hope. But there's another angle to all of this. So here's the second half of our second point. Salvation has been provided, yes, but exclusively in Jesus. Exclusively in Jesus Christ of Nazareth. There is salvation in no one else. It's exclusive. It's specific. There is no other name for this salvation. In all of earth, everything under heaven, there's no other option, there's no other name, there's no other category, there's no other route or path. There's no other name. It's specific here, name. I don't know if you noticed, but name is all over these chapters. Name is a big deal in the book of Acts. Maybe 20 to 25 times 
The word name is used in reference to Jesus. People are baptized in his name. The gospel is preached in his name. They, they go in his name. They suffer for his name. It's all over. It's in chapter 3, verse 16. It's in the name, chapter 3, verse 6, rather. It's in the name of Jesus Christ that that, that man was healed. In chapter 4, verse 7, remember the religious leaders asked, by what power or by what name did you do this? And Peter's answer, verse 10, it's by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. On and on it goes. Verse 12, verse 17. We'll see it again on Sunday in verse 30. It's in his name of the holy servant of Jesus. The name is a big deal in the Bible, more so than it is for us. We just, we name kids whatever either is in the family or sounds interesting or is different than any name any of our friends have used yet. Uh, But in Bible times, there's rich significance with name. First, think of it in terms of Peter saying name here in verse 12 means we're talking about a person. We're talking about a person. We're not talking simply about a path. We're not simply talking about a plan. We're not simply talking about a source of salvation. We're talking about a person. And name also means all that that person is, all that they're going to be, all that they're going to do, all that they have done, all that it means. And so Peter gives us this name, this long name, Jesus Christ of Nazareth, where he's born, His given name, God saves, Yahshua, Jesus, Christ, which means Messiah. This is him. This is all that he is. This is salvation. There is salvation in a name, and it's been revealed. It's not hidden. It's not tucked away. It's not not in a vial somewhere, in a cave somewhere. And maybe scientists someday will find it for us. No, this thing is getting proliferated in the world as we speak. But there's no other name. There is no other option. There is no other way. This is what we call the exclusivity of Christ or the exclusivity of the gospel. We believe that there is one good news and one Savior. This side of the cross and resurrection, there is a specificity to what must be heard and known and believed for salvation. Didn't we see that happen in Acts chapter 2? I believe verse 21, Peter quotes from Joel, call on the name of the Lord and be saved. In Joel's time, that was generic, name of the Lord name of Yahweh, Peter specifies. So by verse 38, he's telling us what name this is. It is Jesus. Call on the name of Jesus and be saved. And the specificity and exclusivity exclusivity of salvation in Jesus is just getting stacked up and and being multi-layered by Acts chapter 4, verse 12. Again, let's just pull them out of a phrase at a time. No other name under all of heaven. You get it? On all of earth's surface, in all of creation, there's no other name for salvation. 
There's no other name given among all of men. Jesus isn't the savior of the Jews or people from long ago. Jesus isn't the white man's God. He's the world's savior. There's only one name, one person, one salvation for all people in all places. And by this name, you must be saved. You must be saved. Now, this is surely one of the greatest offenses that Christianity has to offer this world, that Christ is an exclusive Savior. This was definitively said by Jesus in John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. And it was most definitively stated here by Peter and John in Acts 4, verse 12. Salvation in no one else, no other name under heaven given among men by which you must be saved. This had great offense for its first hearers, whether they be Jews or Romans. To the Jews, even religious Jews, this would have been naturally offensive to hear that salvation is in no one else, in nothing else, in no other name than the poor guy from Nazareth who was crucified on a cross to hear that Jesus is salvation and there's no other means of salvation means that salvation is not in the temple, it's not in the law, it's not in the land, it's not in sacrifices, it's not in Moses, it's not even in Yahweh God generally, it's in Jesus specifically. That would have been of great offense to these Jews, so much so that they can absolutely dismiss the miracle of the lame man walking. Who cares about that? This guy, these people are saying about this guy, he's the only way to God and the only hope for salvation and that all other forms are no form at all. Think of the great offense this would be to Romans, that Jesus is salvation and there's no other salvation would mean there's no salvation in Rome, in Caesar, in the Roman army not in Roman citizenship, that there's no hope, no salvation in the pantheon of Roman gods, which was almost growing by the day. The Romans had this way of occupying other people. They would take them in and take their gods as well. Sure, the more the merrier. You see, if we all share a pantheon of gods, then no one has their private God that they think will be against the Romans. It's just sort of a, a, a stew, a, a religious stew of Roman gods and assimilated gods. Paul here, Peter here, he was saying, there is no salvation in the pantheon of Roman gods and, and certainly not in any one singular Roman God. And this has great offense today not just for Romans and Jews in the first century, but ever since, and certainly today. Many today in the West believe that the only heresy 
is to say that anything is heresy. In the name of tolerance today, there's this growing intolerance against anything that is assumed to be intolerant. And Christianity often is assumed to be so. And so the kind of religion that sells in the U.S. is, well, it's, it's milky, it's watered down, it's, it's bland, it's chicken soup for the soul. In our culture, certainty, conviction, that's poo-pooed, and experience and pragmatism is elevated. Secular people today don't care uh, if something works for you, that's great. They're not offended by that. If that works for you, that's great. I'm glad you found something that works for you. As long as you don't think that what works for you implies that they don't have anything that works, that what they have is wrong. To say that Jesus is the only way to God is to say that all other ways to try to get to God are not only insufficient or less than ideal, but are wrong or harmful or even damnable. And that is strongly rejected by the world around us. Many will not only reject exclusivity, but they will celebrate ambiguity mushiness, the stew. When I was in college in the early 90s, uh, the Indigo Girls were a big thing. Anyone remember them? The Indigo Girls? I like the Indigo Girls. I still listen to them sometimes. Uh, their lyrics are often thoughtful, at least thought-provoking, but sometimes sad and telling, like this. I went to the doctor, I went to the mountains, I looked to the children, I drank from the fountains. There's more than one answer to these questions pointing me in a crooked line. The less I seek my source for some definitive, the closer I am to find. Well, dear girls, Jesus would disagree and Peter would disagree and the Bible disagrees and, and the rest of your song proves that you actually don't get closer to find the more you pursue your own self and your own source. And yet we also, though we, we can say that's wrong, that's sad, we can also sympathize somewhat, can't we? at least with the difficulty of this issue of an exclusive savior and all others being damnable. We Christians don't find that easy. We, we Christians have questions uh, about that. It, it might not seem fair to us. Some Christians have at times chickened out on this issue. They have backpedaled. They've softened it. They've, they've even buckled or, or taken a different view on this despite the Bible's clear teaching. That needs to be acknowledged. That needs to be chastened where that happens. That it needs to be a warning to us all that just because you believe something now doesn't mean when the heat gets a little hotter, you'll not water it down yourself. Back in 1999, I read an article in the Washington Post by Sally Quinn. She called it 
uh, the, the G word and the A-list. It, it went through and interviewed and discussed various celebrities and their approach to religion. And when she got to Larry King, she, she wrote this. Larry King, who is agnostic, has developed a live and let live relationship with believers he meets in Washington. And then she quotes Larry King. He says, those of us who are agnostic are on more of a search. Religious people have the answers to which we have constant questions. Yet our values come from religion. They come from the Ten Commandments. I hope believers are right, says King. I have respect for them. Billy Graham tells me I'm spiritual and I'll be with him in heaven. It's comforting. Now, now let me clarify. This is Sally Quinn quoting Larry King, quoting Billy Graham. And so I hope Dr. Graham never said this, but Larry King says, Billy Graham tells me that I'm spiritual and I'll be with him in heaven. It's comforting. Well, if Billy Graham did say that, despite how God has used him for so many decades in this country and in other countries, it, this is wrong. Agnostics who are spiritual and who get values from 10 commandments are not saved and should not be comforted. God help us that we don't begin to say that someday. The exclusivity of Christ should be gladly embraced and taught and retaught and boldly proclaimed and even celebrated by Christians for these five reasons. Number one, it is true. It's true. John 14, 6. Acts 4.12 tell us it's true. It's what the Bible plainly teaches. It's what Jesus clearly taught. It's true. That's why it must be embraced and even celebrated. Number two, because Jesus deserves unique glory as this world's only savior. All glory goes to him. In Revelation 5, we don't get a picture of heaven's praise and Jesus is on the highest throne but then there's Buddha over here, Muhammad over here, or maybe they're not even there, but at least they've got pictures framed in the hall. Well, no, no, there's no competition. There's only one savior. There's only one great glory like this. Jesus deserves unique glory as our only hope and as the all-sufficient savior for mankind. Number three. The exclusivity of Christ is a good thing. It's right and true. And it deserves our attention and even our celebration because all other explanations for truth and for salvation are insufficient. Every other explanation you come up with other than a supreme, sufficient, and soul, S-O-L-E, Savior, are insufficient. So some people have said, uh, getting to truth is like a, a bunch of blind guys coming up to an elephant and, and one grabs the, the leg and he, he thinks it's a tree and another one goes over to the trunk and he thinks it's a giant fire hose and, and someone has a tail and he thinks it's a rope and, 
and they can't see the whole thing. But they're not far off in what they actually are feeling. They have some measure of truth. They just lack putting it all together. And some say, you know, that's what world religions are like. You know, you're, you're groping after one thing. You put it all together and you can get a decent composite sketch. You, you'll figure out what the elephant is like. Really? That's going to compete with my Jesus? Blind guys with an elephant? I, I, just, I just feel like the Bible probably is a little more clear than that. And I'm going to, I think, go with more clarity, not less. You know, people say all good roads lead to God. But what if one of the roads says this is the only way? It does. So that one can't be in. Either this one's in or it's not in. Either it's the only one or it's no road at all. A fourth reason why the exclusivity of Christ should be gladly embraced is because it isn't loving or humble to deny the truth or to soft pedal the truth for the world around us. Imagine, imagine the days when you didn't get directions from your phone. Uh, very rarely these days, I suspect, do many of us pull over to a gas station and say, can you tell me where the local high school is? I got to get to something there. And uh, we just put into our phone. But imagine you do that. Imagine you pull into a Circle K and you ask for help to get somewhere and you're desperate to get there. And the guy behind the counter says, well, you can get there from any road. And it's kind of true, isn't it? I mean, the analogy is going to break down here in a second, but, but it actually is kind of true. If you turn that way, eventually you can go back the other way and, well, that road will get you there and that road will get you there and you could take a left turn there and then you don't just have to take more rights later on. And it wouldn't be helpful though. It wouldn't be helpful for the Circle, Clay, Circle K clerk to tell you, you can get there from anywhere. You're looking for certainty. You're looking for a direct path. You're looking for one way. It isn't loving or humble to deny the truth or to soft pedal the truth or to let people continue to go astray. And lastly, number five, why is the exclusivity of Christ something to gladly embrace? Because Jesus is what we need and he's all that we need. He is what this world needs. Jesus is the savior. He's not just a teacher. He's not just a leader. He's not just a healer. He's not just a fixer. If salvation's the problem, then only a savior will do. Al Mohler, president of Southern Seminary, he said, if all we need is a teacher of enlightenment, then Buddha will do. If all we need is a collection of gods for every occasion, Hinduism will do. If all we need is a tribal deity, then any tribal deity will do. If what we need is a lawgiver, Moses will do. If we need a set of rules and a way of devotion, Muhammad or Joseph Smith will do. If all we need is inspiration and insight into the sovereign self, for crying out loud, Oprah will do. But if we need a savior, only Jesus, God saves will do. There's salvation and no other. But there is salvation. God has not led us astray. He's not told us to pick a path. He's shown us the way. Three quick implications as I wrap this up. One implication is for missions, for world missions. We must go, we must hear, we, that they must hear 
But we must send, Romans 10 makes this all so very clear, how will they, the world, the unbelievers of this world, how will they call on him for salvation when they have not yet believed? And how will they believe in him when they haven't yet heard? And, and how will they hear unless someone preaches to them? And how are they going to preach to them unless they're sent? So send, go, preach, call on them to believe. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So the exclusivity of Christ is a strong motivation for us to sacrifice our money, our time, our efforts for the spread of the gospel in this world. A second implication is for conviction and courage and clarity. We need to be willing to get specific. No one has ever gotten saved like someone catches a cold. You don't get saved just by being around a Christian. You gotta know Christ. You gotta know Christ. It doesn't say there's salvation in God's people or rubbing shoulders with nice people or seeing good works. There's salvation in no other name. They have to know the name. You gotta tell them the name. This isn't like almost any other thing out there. This isn't like talking about the best laundry detergent. You can say, I'm so convinced all is the best. And someone else says, eh, I just don't like the smell. You know, I don't know. I, I feel like this other brand, Arm and Hammer, gets out the stains better. Do you, do you, someone else says whisk. And if this isn't anything like that. Most things in this world, most debates that we might have are just that, debates, preferences, ideas, maybe even strong personal preferences. Which teenage mutant ninja turtle would you be? Drew Hodge just recently asked me. <laughs> this is not like that, is it? This is more like me saying, these kids are my kids. And someone else saying, no, they're not. And me saying, yeah, they are. I saw them come out. I was there. I've been with them. They smell like me. They do things I do. I know I have the birth certificates. I have, I have experience with them. I don't have, a, I don't have a, a bit of doubt that they're mine. I don't care whether you think I'm stupid because you think they're not my kids. Get, get out of here. You're not taking my kids. They're not your kids. Just because you say they're your kids doesn't mean they're your kids. They're my kids. I know they're my kids. Wasn't that something like God and Jesus Christ among the so-called other religious options out there. Someone says, well, I think he's a farce. And you go, well, you don't know him, man. I know him. I, I can speak to this with, with great conviction and boldness and assurance and, and certainty because I know his word, I know him, I have his spirit. It's like saying, these are my kids. A third implication is for definitive hope. We have definitive hope if we have a soul savior, S-O-L-E. If he is this world's only savior and he is our savior, then we don't have to wonder. We don't have to keep poking around and seeing if there's a better option out there. 
we have definitive hope. We have salvation. That one word, salvation, there in Acts 4.12, we know as Christians, there's so much that goes into it. Implied, and that is the means of salvation and the cross and the blood, the death, the resurrection. Acts 4.12 tells us that Christ is this world's only savior, but it doesn't specifically tell us how he saved us and what it means. So let me tell you from other parts of the Bible. We sometimes call these gospel nuggets in the Bible. Like this, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him, the chastisement that brought us peace. God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. For our sake, God made him, Jesus, to be sin. Him who knew no sin made him to be sin or bear sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. When the fullness of time came, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. In him, we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. On and on I could go. How wonderful is God's word to so repeatedly, succinctly, and impactedly record for us what Jesus has done and all that he is and why we can trust him and what it means now and for eternity.